Hi, and welcome to Fado, an audio adventure into fantasy, folklore, and fairy tales. I'm John, your host, and thanks for dropping in. First, I want to welcome you back. This week, I've been researching and deciding which stories to read in Season 1. I'm getting a few together. I'm starting to kind of zero in on exactly how I want my format to go as well. I'm making some progress, I think, and I've come up with some ideas uh, in addition to the stories that I want to do. I think it'll be a lot of fun. I managed to find a pop filter for the microphone that I'm using, so we should have fewer of those percussive ear-splitting pops. There were one or two when I was listening to my audio back last time after I had uploaded it. Um, Wasn't too bad, but I think this will make a significant improvement. And I'll tell you something else. I'm recording this podcast in a spare room in my house. You don't realize how many noises fly under the radar until you're trying to record a podcast in your house. So hopefully most of the traffic and dogs barking and airplanes flying over, hopefully much of that will be removed in processing and editing. But if you hear one, just uh, consider it a bonus. You're welcome. Now, on to today's story. Our story originates in 10th century Japan. It concerns the legends and stories that cropped up around a man by the name of Fujiwara Hidesato. Hidesato is actually a real historical figure, and he was an aristocrat who helped resist one of the largest uprisings of his day. He's famous in history, and as well as legend, so he has gained this folk hero status. Now, based on the number of claims that are made of ancestry, the number of people that claim to be descended from Fujiwara Hidesato, and also the number of relics that are claimed to be his in the world today, uh, it became clear that Hidesato has made uh, quite a mark on his culture. And he even earned a legendary nickname. And that is the story we're going to read today. This story is called My Lord Bag of Rice. And the version I'm going to read for you is from a collection of Japanese tales from the early 20th century. But the earliest versions of this story go back as far as the 1300s. And as I mentioned before, Hidesato himself lived in the 10th century. And so in those intervening years, he has become this folkloric, legendary hero. He was a hero anyway, but stories like this one were built around his already very impressive resume. And so, as published in Japanese Fairy Tales, a compilation by Ye Theodora Ozaki in 1908, My Lord Bag of Rice. Long, long ago, there lived in Japan a brave warrior known to all as Tawara Toda, or My Lord Bag of Rice. His true name was Fujiwara Hidesato, and there is a very interesting story of how he came to change his name. One day, he sallied forth in search of adventures, 
for he had the nature of a warrior, and could not bear to be idle. So he buckled on his two swords, took his huge bow, much taller than himself, in his hand, and slinging his quiver on his back, started out. He had not gone far when he came to the bridge of Setanokarashi, spanning one end of the beautiful lake Biwa. No sooner had he set foot on the bridge than he saw lying right across the path a huge serpent dragon. Its body was so big that it looked like the trunk of a large pine tree, and it took up the whole width of the bridge. One of its huge claws rested on the parapet of one side of the bridge, while its tail lay right against the other. The monster seemed to be asleep, and as it breathed, fire and smoke came out of its nostrils. At first Hidasato could not help feeling alarmed at the sight of this horrible reptile laying in his path, for he must either turn back or walk right over its body. He was a brave man, however, and putting aside all fear went forward dauntlessly. Crunch, crunch, he stepped now on the dragon's body, now between its coils and without even one glance backward he went on his way. He had only gone a few steps when he heard someone calling him from behind. On turning back he was much surprised to see that the monster dragon had entirely disappeared, and in its place was a strange-looking man who was bowing most ceremoniously to the ground. His red hair streamed over his shoulders and was surmounted by a crown in the shape of a dragon's head, and his sea-green dress was patterned with shells. Hidasato knew at once that this was no ordinary mortal, and he wondered much at the strange occurrence. Where had the dragon gone in such a short space of time? Or had it transformed itself into this man, and what did the whole thing mean? While these thoughts passed through his mind, he had come up to the man on the bridge and now addressed him. Was it you that called me just now? Yes, it was I, answered the man. I have an earnest request to make to you. Do you think you can grant it to me? If it is in my power to do so, I will, answered Hidasato. First tell me who you are. I am the dragon king of the lake, and my home is in these waters just under this bridge. And what is it you have to ask of me, said Hidasato? I want you to kill my mortal enemy, the centipede, who lives on the mountain beyond, and the dragon king pointed to a high peak on the opposite shore of the lake. I have lived now for many years in this lake, and I have a large family of children and grandchildren. For some time past we have lived in terror, for a monster centipede has discovered our home, and night after night it comes and carries off one of my family. I am powerless to save them. If it goes on much longer like this, not only shall I lose all my children, but I myself must fall a victim to the monster. I am therefore very unhappy, and in my extremity I determined to ask the help of a human being. For many days, with this intention, I have waited on the bridge in the shape of the horrible serpent dragon that you saw, in the hope that some strong, brave man would come along. But all who came this way, as soon as they saw me, were terrified and ran away as fast as they could. You are the first man I have found able to look at me without fear, so I knew at once that you were a man of great courage. I beg you to have pity upon me. Will you not help me and kill my enemy the centipede? Hidasato felt very sorry for the Dragon King on hearing his story and readily promised to do what he could to help him. 
The warrior asked where the centipede lived, so that he might attack the creature at once. The dragon king replied that its home was on the mountain Mikami, but that as it came every night at a certain hour to the palace of the lake, it would be better to wait till then. So Hidesato was conducted to the palace of the dragon king under the bridge. Strange to say, as he followed his host downward, the waters parted to let them pass, and his clothes did not even feel damp as he passed through the flood. Never had Hidesato seen anything so beautiful as this palace built of white marble beneath the lake. He had often heard of the Sea King's palace at the bottom of the sea, where all the servants and retainers were saltwater fishes, but here was a magnificent building in the heart of Lake Biwa. The dainty goldfishes, red carp, and silvery trout waited upon the dragon king and his guest. Hidesato was astonished at the feast that was spread for him. The dishes were crystallized lotus leaves and flowers, and the chopsticks were of the rarest ebony. As soon as they sat down, the sliding doors opened and ten lovely goldfish dancers came out. And behind them followed ten red carp musicians with the koto and the samisen. Thus the hours flew by until midnight, and the beautiful music and dancing had banished all thoughts of the centipede. The dragon king was about to pledge the warrior in a fresh cup of wine when the palace was suddenly shaken by a tramp, tramp, as if a mighty army had begun to march not far away. Hidesato and his host both rose to their feet and rushed to the balcony, and the warrior saw on the opposite mountain two great balls of glowing fire coming nearer and nearer. The dragon king stood by the warrior's side, trembling with fear. The centipede! The centipede! Those two balls of fire are its eyes! It is coming for its prey! Now is the time to kill it! Hidesato looked where his host pointed, and in the dim light of the starlit evening, behind the two balls of fire he saw the long body of an enormous centipede, winding round the mountains, and the light in its hundred feet glowed like so many distant lanterns moving slowly toward the shore. Hidesato showed not the least sign of fear. He tried to calm the dragon king. Don't be afraid. I shall surely kill the centipede. Just bring me my bow and arrows. The dragon king did as he was bid, and the warrior noticed that he had only three arrows left in his quiver. He took the bow, and fitting an arrow to the notch, took careful aim and let fly. The arrow hit the centipede right in the middle of its head, but instead of penetrating it glanced off harmless and fell to the ground. Nothing daunted, Hidesato took another arrow, fitted it to the notch of the bow and let fly. Again the arrow hit the mark, it struck the centipede right in the middle of its head, only to glance off and fall to the ground. The centipede was invulnerable to weapons. When the Dragon King saw that this brave warrior's arrows were powerless to kill the centipede, he lost heart and began to tremble with fear. The warrior saw that he had now only one arrow left in his quiver, and if this one failed, he could not kill the centipede. He looked across the waters. The huge reptile had wound its horrible body seven times around the mountain and would soon come down to the lake. Nearer and nearer gleamed fireballs of eyes, and the light of its hundred feet began to throw reflections into the still waters of the lake. Then suddenly the warrior remembered that he had heard that human saliva was deadly to centipedes, but this was no ordinary centipede. This was so monstrous that even to think of such a creature made one creep with horror. Hidesato determined to try his last chance. So taking his last arrow, and first putting the end of it in his mouth, he fitted the notch to his bow, 
took careful aim once more, and let fly. This time, the arrow again hit the centipede right in the middle of its head, but instead of glancing off harmlessly as before, it struck home to the creature's brain. Then, with a convulsive shudder, the serpentine body stopped moving, and the fiery light of its great eyes and hundred feet darkened to a dull glare like the sunset of a stormy day, and then went out in blackness. A great darkness now overspread the heavens, the thunder rolled and the lightning flashed, and the wind roared in fury, and it seemed as if the world were coming to an end. The Dragon King and his children and retainers all crouched in different parts of the palace, frightened to death, for the building was shaken to its foundations. At last the dreadful night was over. Day dawned, beautiful and clear. The centipede was gone from the mountain. Then Hidesato called to the Dragon King to come out with him on the balcony, for the centipede was dead, and he had nothing more to fear. Then all the inhabitants of the palace came out with joy and Hidesato pointed to the lake. There lay the body of the dead centipede floating on the water, which was dyed red with its blood. The gratitude of the dragon king knew no bounds. The whole family came and bowed down before the warrior, calling him their preserver and the bravest warrior in all Japan. Another feast was prepared, more sumptuous than the first. All kinds of fish prepared in every imaginable way, raw, stewed, boiled, and roasted, served on coral trays and crystal dishes were put before him, and the wine was the best that Hidesato had ever tasted in his life. To add to the beauty of everything, the sun shone brightly, the lake glittered like a liquid diamond, and the palace was a thousand times more beautiful by day than by night. His host tried to persuade the warrior to stay a few days, but Hidesato insisted on going home, saying that he had now finished what he had come to do and must return. The Dragon King and his family were all very sorry to have him leave so soon, but since he would go, they begged him to accept a few small presents, so they said, in token of their gratitude to him, for delivering them forever from their horrible enemy, the Centipede. As the warrior stood in the porch taking leave, a train of fish was suddenly transformed into a retinue of men, all wearing ceremonial robes and dragon's crowns on their heads, to show that they were servants of the great Dragon King. The presents that they carried were as follows. First, a large bronze bell. Second, a bag of rice. Third, a roll of silk. Fourth, a cooking pot. Fifth, a bell. Hidesato did not want to accept all these presents, but, as the Dragon King insisted, he could not well refuse. The Dragon King himself accompanied the warrior as far as the bridge, and then took leave of him with many bows and good wishes, leaving the procession of servants to accompany Hidesato to his house with the presents. The warrior's household and servants had been very much concerned when they found that he did not return the night before, but they finally concluded that he had been kept by the violent storm and had taken shelter somewhere. When the servants on the watch for his return caught sight of him, they called to everyone that he was approaching, and the whole household turned out to meet him, wondering much what the retinue of men bearing presents and banners that followed him could mean. As soon as the Dragon King's retainers had put down the presents, they vanished, and Hidesato told all that had happened to him. The presents which he had received from the grateful Dragon King were found to be of magic power. The bell only was ordinary, and as Hidesato had no use for it, he presented it to the temple nearby, where it was hung up to boom out the hour of the day over the surrounding neighborhood.
The single bag of rice, however much was taken from it day after day for the meals of the knight and his whole family, never grew less. The supply in the bag was inexhaustible. The roll of silk, too, never grew shorter, though time after time long pieces were cut off to make the warrior a new suit of clothes to go to court in at the new year. The cooking pot was wonderful, too. No matter what was put into it, it cooked deliciously whatever was wanted without any firing, truly a very economical saucepan. The fame of Hidesato's fortune spread far and wide, and as there was no need for him to spend money on rice or silk or firing, he became very rich and prosperous, and was henceforth known as My Lord Bag of Rice. Now, I don't know about you, but I really enjoy that one. There are so many things that once I read this story, I wanted to talk about and to delve into, but I didn't want to end up with an hour-long talk after this story, so I'm going to keep it as compact and brief as possible. The first thing that occurred to me was that I was fascinated with the idea that one of the treasures that Hidesato had received was just this bell, a mundane bell, which he donated to a temple. Now, I wanted to see if anyone held claim to that bell today, if it was allegedly anywhere in the world. And uh, a quick search, I, I managed to find that it is in fact true. The temple of Midera, which is near Lake Biwa, which is mentioned in the story, claims to have the actual bell to this day. And there's a whole story around the history of the bell that goes into what has happened to the bell in the time since Hidesato donated it to the temple. And so this bell is still there, the one that they claim was given to them by Lord Bag of Rice himself. And there are pictures of the bell, and it's made out to be a fairly simple, mundane bell in the story, but it's a pretty impressive bell, all things considered. I recommend looking it up. It's pretty interesting. Now, another thing that I ran across while I was looking for the bell are the swords that allegedly belonged to Hidesato. And it's just a fun detail. The version of the story that I read to you is not the most detailed version that's out there. In some versions of the story, Hidesato has... Uh, a few more encounters with different characters. He is also gifted a few more things. But a fun thing that I happened across was that the Isa Grand Shrine in Japan have two swords on display at their museum that allegedly belonged to Hidesato. Now, one is supposed to have come from the palace of the Dragon King himself. It was a gift. The other bears the inscription Mukadagiri which is a word that means centipede cutter. Now, I know what you're thinking. Didn't Hidesato kill the centipede with an arrow in the story? Well, yes, he did. And in some other versions of the story, though, he kills the centipede, but then proceeds to cut it into many, many pieces with his sword. And so this museum has a sword which itself claims to be the sword he used to cut the centipede with. I don't know about you, but I love it when real-world objects and places kind of collide with these legendary stories, and this story runs all through with that sort of thing. 
Now, the next thing that I was curious about was the fact that Hidesato suddenly remembers that saliva is fatal to centipedes. I seized on that, and I wanted to check into it. And I found an old compilation of folklore and superstition and ran across several cultures that have at one point held the belief that saliva can be poisonous in some way. Now, Japan was on that list. So they do have some folklore about saliva being poisonous. Now, saliva does turn up in a lot of folk remedies and curses and things of that nature. If you look into a lot of old medical treatments before there was anything that resembled scientific method and medicine, you'll see saliva turning up a lot. But in a lot of cases, it's supposed to be, you know, have some kind of a power. Now, what I couldn't find is whether or not it was specifically centipedes or if centipedes are a part of a larger group of things that can be killed with human spit. But I'd be willing to bet that this is one of those Easter eggs that I mentioned in episode one. At the time of the story, maybe it was an accepted fact that saliva could be lethal to one thing or another. And it might even be that the listener would have been expected to know how to kill a centipede and might even have been cheering or encouraging Hidesato, you know, from the other side of the fourth wall. We've all watched those children's shows where they encourage you to yell answers to questions at the screen. It could have been something like that. Imagine that, if you will, like the storyteller relating this tale of Hidesato, and he goes up against this big centipede, and he's got three arrows left, and he's already tried two of them, and the listener has to go, wait a minute, surely Hidesato knows how to kill a centipede. I mean, we all know how to kill a centipede. Or maybe it wasn't even that it was all that fatal. Maybe it was a kind of uh, warding method. I don't know, spit on your door frames and the centipedes won't come in from outside. Something like that. I don't know. This is speculation on my part, but you could get there. You can imagine that that might have been the case. So the giant centipede leads me into another thought I had, which I, I hope is true. And I really like the idea of it. And when I was growing up in the 80s, I always loved things like Voltron and Japanese-style animation and things like that, where these gigantic robots are fighting these gigantic monsters in these huge combats. And even further back in the 1950s, you have Godzilla, which was a huge craze. And, you know, he's still popular even today. The movie gets remade every once in a while, and the studio, I think, that made the original one is still around and turning those out from time to time. This concept of the kaiju, right? The enormous, impossibly big monster. And I don't know if that is specifically a Japanese thing, but that's what I associate some of their entertainment and some of the culture with, is this these gigantic creatures. So here you have a story of this fantastically large centipede and fire coming from its eyes and its feet and this really amazing dramatic description of this centipede. And I can't help but wonder... How far back are these kinds of creatures and monsters really ingrained in the Japanese culture? Because they really do it well, and the modern representations of those are incredibly entertaining, at least to me. And so I wonder if it goes this far back, if we can look this far back to the 10th century and see the groundwork being laid for Godzilla and Voltron and these huge colossal stories. I like to think that that's true. I'm not a scholar of folklore, 
but I like to find connections and see if I can pick things up. And I hope that that in some small way rings true. I would love for this to be some origin for that. So now I really liked this one. I really enjoyed the dramatic language and the vivid imagery. The centipede's attack is so much fun. And if you really stop and think about the image that's being described, it's pretty terrifying. Take a second to really let that sink in. This idea of this huge centipede with fiery eyes and fiery feet just barreling toward them. And Hidesato with three arrows and that's it. And everyone is just on bated breath waiting to see if he's going to succeed. It's a really great story. Just filled to the brim with tension and this excitement. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Now I really want to thank everyone for tuning in. I'm having a great time with this and I hope that you are too. I want to thank everyone who has followed the Facebook page, for my subscribers so far, for the downloads that have happened already. This is just a blast. It looks like I'm going to release episodes every Sunday. At least for now, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to shoot to release a new episode every Sunday, and so you can uh, plan on that for the near future, and we'll see where things go from there. Watch for episode three a week from today on June 7th. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you once upon a next time.